You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we look beneath the surface of music and technology. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a music and technology PR firm. All right, today I'm bringing you the Blockchain Peace Summit. So let me start here. Last October at our inaugural Music Tectonics Conference in Los Angeles, we hosted a blockchain cage match refereed by NWA's Arabian Prince with three skeptics and three enthusiasts facing off in wrestling masks and capes. I came up with this idea for the cage match after attending some music industry conferences in the past couple of years, I'd say, where there were a slew of music blockchain camp uh, panels. I noticed that while there were entrepreneurs and engineers on stage, there were oftentimes music industry veterans snickering at the back of the room or in the hallway. And I wanted to get into the points of contention instead of seeing the two factions have separate conversations. So though the cage match was fun, it didn't quite turn out the way that I'd hoped. You see, one of our skeptics got sick and we decided to fill the hole with a volunteer from the audience. And in an unplanned turn of events, all of our skeptics ended up being women and all of our enthusiasts ended up being men. I purposely had played up all the theatrics of this session to add some fun to the conference and to push participants to be direct with their positions on blockchain and the music industry. But fueling this debate with a wrestling theme not only led to some playful but heated exchanges, the theme of men yelling over women on a conference panel was not the intended outcome. But that certainly happened at times, and the line between controversy and theatrics rapidly blurred. The energetic response from the audience at the conference made it clear that they were hungry for the dialogue on this topic. So I'm excited to try another spin with today's episode, the Blockchain Peace Summit. To help us unpack the blockchain in music conversation, we have with us today two awesome participants from our conference session. Dr. Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association and host of the Future of What podcast and radio show. Check it out. And someone with whom I actually ran around in the streets of New York back in high school. Welcome, Portia. Thanks, Dimitri. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. And also with us is Ken Umazaki, co-founder of CEO and CEO of Verify Media. He's also an investor and advisor through his company, Digital Daruma, and someone who egged me on when I was first launching my music tech startup, StoryAmp. Welcome, Ken. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good. Ken, are you in New York? And Portia, are you in Nashville? I'm in Nashville, yes. New York City, baby. Awesome. And I'm in Bloomington, Indiana, as usual. So we got our three-city conversation. Thank you both for coming on to the, com uh, to the podcast and giving us a second chance to tackle the topic of blockchain in the music industry. Ironically, I know both of you actually hesitated to join the original Cage Match session because, Ken, I know you didn't really want to be on a blockchain panel, that your company, though it uses blockchain, you're not trying to say that blockchain is the end-all be all for everything in music. And Portia, I know you never claimed to be an expert on blockchain, but you had mentioned it on your podcast, The Future of What, and had some skepticism about new solutions that ignore some of the basic human challenges of data in music, how the database itself has to start with humans entering data and how the data doesn't stay static for long with people moving and changing roles and selling rights and so forth. So I appreciate you doing this twice now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Glutton for punishment, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Ken, we'll, we'll get into your role um, at your company or the role that your company plays in a little bit, but would you mind uh, being up for like giving us a quick overview of what blockchain and music means kind of as a jumping off point to get our conversation going? 
Sure. I think um, lots of people have, you know, slightly different definitions, but mine would be, um, as it relates to music, you know, solutions that include, but not necessarily solely rely on what um, a fancy word would be, distributed ledger technology um, that's used to, you know, either enhance, disrupt, or enable new ways for consumers, creators, and everyone in the middle uh, to distribute, consume, and create music assets. Um, broadly, I think there are three types or three groups, at least from my thinking. Um, you have sort of the direct-to-fan kind of oriented services that are out there that leverage blockchain tech. Um, streaming services on the chain would be the one to probably highlight there, peer tracks, Ujo Music, et cetera. Um, you have a bunch of people focused on data. That's where we kind of are. Uh, music data, whether that's metadata or rights data. So you have Verify, that's us, um, Blocker, Bitfury Surround, Revelator, and others. And then I guess the broader category of other applications to music might include uh, microfinancing of music assets, which is what Vest is focused on, fan engagement, a um, little bit of digital scarcity, which is Finaply would be an example of that company. And then a lot of stuff going on in ticketing, including companies like Yellowheart and Block Party. You know, generally sort of solutions that or services that include the chain uh, in this context are probably most useful uh, when there are multiple parties involved that are trying to share something together. And also probably an enterprise approach, if you will, or if you want to think of it in simpler terms, participation by larger companies, because the technology is both nascent and also pretty heavy, meaning, you know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen correctly in order for the blockchain to be efficient. Well, that was that was an awesome intro because not only did you paint a big picture, but you also started to hint at what some of the issues have been in the music space already, and I'm I'm looking forward to getting into that. Um, and I have tons of follow up questions, but before we get there, I also want to just just right from the start, Portia, get you right into the conversation. And in the time since we first talked about blockchain and the time of the Music Tectonics Conference, you moved from running the indie label Kill Rockstars to becoming the president of Music Business Association. And my guess is you've had a lot more conversations about blockchain in recent months. I'm curious, would you talk a little bit about your early hesitations when blockchain became the trendy conversation in the music industry over the last couple of years? Well, I think the thing about um, blockchain is that my initial hesitations are still totally my current hesitations. Um, but I would say the best thing about blockchain at the moment is that it is bringing the focus to data which is where our focus really needs to be, given the place that the music space is at right now with technology. Um, you know, in order for artists, labels, and everyone else to get paid properly, we really need to understand how data is managed and um, how data is created in the first place. And so that is, it's a very good thing that we're having these conversations. Uh, we're, we're actually kind of ahead of the curve as an industry, although a lot of people would say we're behind the curve most of the time. The music industry. Um, there are other uh, other um, industries where they manage, you know, a lot of data and a lot of rights, like the publishing industry, for example, where they just aren't even having these conversations at this time. Um, so, you know, we can feel like a little bit smug <laughs> because we're at least having having the conversation. Um, but yeah, that's you know, I, I do feel like it's great uh, that we can bring data into the forefront and blockchain is a great way to do that. So if, if it's great that the blockchain conversation is bringing in this, this data conversation and, and putting that at the forefront, what are, what are some, what are some of your hesitations, Portia? 
Well, the biggest problem that we have is that um, it doesn't matter what the technology is. The, pr the problem is that we are not that great as a group in, in the simple act of recording who the rights holders are in a given, for a given piece of music. Um, you know, whether your technology is a piece of paper and a pencil or whether your technology is the blockchain, if you input the data incorrectly in the first place, um, you know, at least with the pen and, pen and paper, you can erase, or the pencil and paper, you can erase and, and start over again. Um, the blockchain makes it a little bit more difficult if the whole point is that it's not supposed to be able to be changed. But the, you know, the the human error and not just human error, but also just the lack of understanding of who is a rights holder and how rights holders are going to, in the future, come into play. Um, because a lot of the people who are creating music are new artists. And that's not to say that artists who've been around forever don't also completely screw up on, you know, um, attributing rights. Because, like, a, you know, some superstar artist, maybe that person, I would assume, is not even, like, they're not involved in writing down who is playing on what instrument in, you know, a given recording session. Um, but instead, they're trusting to their team that someone is doing that properly. And I feel like that is the crux of the matter. It's like, you know, we are now in a system where all of the payments are coming in these sort of micro bites here and there from a zillion sources. You know, not that long ago, 20 years ago, we still were in an industry where most people got paid from record sales. And I mean, like cash across a counter in a record store. Um, and that was the that was the the hmm. model. Like that's how people got paid. Now it's a zillion, like I said, a zillion pieces of data coming in from all sorts of different revenue streams. Um, you know, I remember when Spotify came into the marketplace because I always did royalties for my record label by hand. And, you know, I would be, I would be like, um, I would have a spreadsheet that had like 8,000 lines of data on it. Right. And that would be my entire quarter uh, that I needed to process for royalties. And then I remember when Spotify came in and all of a sudden I opened a document, it was like 385,000 lines. Uh, and I was like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, that's so, you know, we're just talking about it. the volume is is out of control. Um, and that's, you know, I, I don't want to get too far off the point, but but I feel like a conversation about recording, like properly recording rights holders at the inception of a piece of music is still very problematic. And whether it's a pencil and paper or whether it's blockchain that is the conversation we need to get to the forefront and make sure that people understand. Portia, have you, as you, as you had the initial started to hear about all this kind of hype about blockchain and had sort of the, I'm a record label, I've done this stuff a certain way for a long time and I know how hard it is just to get the data, not, not the data right, but to even input, to get the inputs correctly. Um, have you had some conversations that have started to change how you think about blockchain and its possibilities? I don't think anyone's yet suggested to me that blockchain is going to fix that specific problem. But I, I feel like I'm being really generous by saying I'm glad that at least it's making people talk about it because that's that's what will change things is that if people understand that this is a topic that's even worth talking about, that's going to make a big difference. You know, I, I always think about my own career as a recording artist and 
like it's 25 years later and I couldn't tell you the name of the studio we recorded in. I don't remember the engineer's last name. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't remember any of that stuff. And if it became important because I was like, let's say in a famous band, which is obviously not the case, um, you know, someone out there would be not getting paid because I don't have a good memory 25 years later. Um, so I don't see how blockchain technology is going to fix that problem. Uh, but I am glad that it's it's making us have the conversation. Gotcha. Cool. So, Ken, we'll break this down a little bit further. We'll go down to the, the bottom of the problems and then we'll build it back up and see where blockchain is may, may first become relevant and useful. But why do you think blockchain became the favorite topic to hate in the music industry? Yeah. Um, hate is kind of a strong word. I try not to use it in general. Um, I would say definitely, you know, misinformation and maybe misalignment with some of the broader music business objectives and issues. As Portia pointed out, you know, the conversation around data and getting that right, you know, throughout the life cycle of an asset, I think is, you know, front and center. Um, and I think uh, this kind of holistic, uh, the blockchain solves everything hype, if you will. Um, you know, I think. Uh, is uh, both misaligned and, and leads to a lot of misinformation. So I think uh, I think of it as um, in a couple different dimensions in terms of how this became what it is. Um, blockchain and music um, chatter, if you will, I think I feel co coincided with what I call the crypto summer, right? Which is uh, crypto cryptocurrencies going crazy. Let's call it circa three years ago. So I think for a lot of people you know, who read the headlines and sort of follow what happened with uh, Bitcoin or any of the other currencies is, you know, two things. One is like these evangelists and startups think, you know, the chain solves everything and that can't be the case and they don't even understand our business. So, you know, uh, skepticism from that perspective. And then the second thing, which, you know, is there's no way it's sort of a view that there's no way I'm putting my music assets on a chain, you know, where some miner controls all my data. Right. Um, so I think, you know, those two sort of headline top of the waves perspectives, um, I think, um, sort of had something to do with the sort of hate, if you will. I also think it's a very complicated technology. It's also very nascent. Um, what some people call enterprise use cases really have only materialized over the last 18 months or so. Um, you know, I think I mentioned this in our, in our panel discussion, you know, I, I often look outside of the music industry for what's going on as well. And you can see um, Walmart, you know, using Fabric, which is um, a IBM blockchain. Microsoft um, Xbox is using Azure, which is their own blockchain to manage uh, publishing rights and royalties for um, games. And more recently, you take a look at um, really close to home, you know, Consensus, which is the Ethereum's coding and business solutions group uh, being selected as one of the technology vendors for the MLC. You know, those are all really, in my opinion, um, enterprise use cases, um, which really didn't exist, for lack of a better term, back in the sort of crypto summer from about three years ago. Now, there's a lot of business risk associated with betting on new technologies. So I think there's a little bit of that fearing what you don't understand. And it's very understandable. It's you know, every industry goes through that when a, a new piece of tech shows up and they have to evaluate it. You know, um, my the sort of realistic perspective on 
what's really going on, I think, in the music and blockchain space, if you will, is a vast majority of the of the efforts in media that involve the chain are not involved in crypto at all. It's not at all either a part or a central part of their services. Um, and so as the hype has gone away, I call it the uh, Game of Thrones style long winter, um, has gone away on the crypto side. Um, I think, you know, that combined with this emergence of sort of data solutions at the enterprise level, I think have started to dissipate the fear factor, maybe, in embracing um, the technology as a possible how, not the why or what, but the how of how we're going to deal with some of the issues that the chain might be useful for. Um, I actually, lastly, just to... um, you know, beat myself up for a second. I actually think it's the responsibility of companies like ours who are working in this space to actually demonstrate and, you know, provide information as well as education and ultimately, you know, demonstrate the value proposition of why a chain makes sense within various music, um, uh, music, you know, parts of the music business. I actually don't think we've done a good job of that collectively. um, And that's on us. And I think we need to do a better job of that. I wanted to kind of piggyback on that, Dimitri, if it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I really want to agree with Ken. I think hate is too strong of a word. I don't. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> oh, no. No, no. It's it's fine. It's you're, just, you're, the, think... you're the marketing guy, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think that hate, you know, I, I think it's not really hate. But I also want to place it in a historical context. You know, we are like just take me for an example i i ran a record label during the um digital revolution right so when i started in 2006 it was a purely physical market um and then we we moved in i mean with some itunes downloads and then we moved into um you know the streaming market and everything became digital and during the 13 that well let's let's give it the 10 years so that we're back the three years that ken mentioned you know that first 10 years the music industry was inundated with people from the tech sector coming in and saying, I've got this incredible technology that's going to solve all your problems. So when blockchain popped it up, we'd already been inundated, like I said, with these people who had no idea how our sector worked and who were coming in to say, I've got this miracle solution you know, and I always, the joke I always make on my podcast is, you know, text this number to, um, you know, me and I, you'll, you'll get a hat, you know? And I'm always like, uh, <laughs> I would, you know, was like, how is that solving any of my problems? Like, that is not a problem that I have in the music industry. You guys are not solving it, but you're very, very confident and sure that your tech is the thing that we're missing because we're a bunch of idiots over here in the music sector. So, you know, we were used to being condescended to by the tech sector for many, many years. And so when blockchain popped up and all of a sudden it was like the hottest, hottest thing and, and people were investing money in it, it was like, you know, um, adding insult to injury because it's like, oh, you guys totally don't understand our sector and you're getting all the money that's out there. So I think that, you know, hate is a strong word, but, you know, I think it was just like, wow, that's really unfair. <laughs> So it's more of an eye roll than hate. Yeah, it was like, it was just like, are you serious? How could that be? And I think it's, I think, yeah, just one more thing to add to that. I think, you know, with my sort of travel through the music tech as an investor hat on, putting that hat on for a second, I completely comprehend the sort of reticence of the, of industry 
knowledgeable industry people looking at the tech industry and also all these startups, you know, there's thousands of them trying to solve a small problem with very little knowledge about the problems that are supposed to be solved or, you know, the, the way you would go about doing that. And I think, you know, for whatever reason, music tech, because I do some stuff outside of the media business as well, um, tends to attract, if that's even the right term, at least in my experience, um, more of those sort of evangelist type tech people. And I think, you know, one of the things I hope we're starting to see, certainly around data, uh, at least I see it as, you know, it's actually the industry people that are starting to look at the problem and thinking about creative ways potentially to solve those. So I, I do think there is kind of a, a, a underground shift in the in the appropriateness of the tools that are being introduced. Um, I certainly see that from my lens, even within this company that I'm, I'm uh, currently CEOing. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I've been so blown away in the last three years by the kinds of tech companies that are starting up and they are, that are actually solving real problems. And I, I feel, you know, I've been doing a lot more of that, focusing on those, those companies in my podcast, because I really think that we should celebrate the people who took the time, you know, to study the industry, figure out what our problems are, and then figure out tech solutions to those problems. I'm, you know, I'm inordinately grateful to those people um, because it, that was something that was a pain point, you know, and I guess, I guess it's important to get that clear um, because nobody likes to be condescended to. And like you said, Ken, it's weird how um, music somehow attracted the evangelist types because as recently as last summer, I was at a conference and someone who was on a blockchain panel, shockingly, said that he had been in the music space, like this is last summer, for a year and a half. And then he was like, wow, you guys, this is a really complicated industry. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Like that would literally never occur to me to like walk into an airport and be like, I'm here to, you know, you know, t fix all your aviation problems. It's like, I, what do you know about aviation? Nothing. <laughs> Step aside, you know, it's just weird. Yeah, I think I think partly it's because there have been some other industries where technology has come in and was able to solve some some problems, whether they're related to efficiencies or disintermediation or um, or just doing things more efficiently. Um, and in music, it is I mean, I, <laughs> it is pretty complicated when you think about both the, you know, the recording side and the, the, the rights and licensing on that, the composition side and the rights and licensing on that, um, this, you know, the the every single song basically has multiple in, in, inventors you know and how you deal with with that and uh, and then obviously the shift from physical to digital happened in a way that really wasn't that planned um as an industry it kind of you know first with first with piracy and then with downloads and then with streaming it just kind of like it didn't get driven by the the folks that were used to making and selling selling music and so somebody who comes in a little bit later into the process maybe in the download or the streaming the the, the monetized streaming age is like wait how come all these things haven't been connected yet you know um because uh if 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 there's any kind of technology usually that the connect a lot of those connections happen 
um, early in the process. If you're doing e-commerce for the first time, you, you're figuring out all those systems. So I think, I think that might be, be part of it too. But let's talk about, um, Ken, in your opening uh, answer to my first question about, about what is blockchain, you made reference to a lot of different things. And I'm curious, could we talk a little bit more specifically about where you both think blockchain will become relevant and useful in its earliest stages in the music industry? Um, you, you mentioned something about enterprise uh, uh, approaches and implementations of blockchain um, and you know the idea that uh, you need a lot of different players that are using it. You can't just be one entity that says, here's the blockchain and here's how it works in music because if it doesn't interact with anything else. What are, what are the early use cases that you guys could see really, really being implemented successfully? Um, so I'll, I'll give you a slightly self-serving answer. Um, because of what we're doing, which I think, you know, we've touched on a bunch of the aspects of it already. Um, so we're, we're in the rights data management space, if you will, space in quotes. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we're essentially a consistent data framework to connect the entire value chain of recorded music from artist to writer, all the middleman, label publisher, PRO distributors, um, all the way over to the streaming services, and of course the fans on the other side. Um, the, the two goals, if you want to think about it, are sharing that data in an effective and efficient way across all parties. You know, it's, you can unpack that and there's a lot that needs to happen there to make it work right. Um, and also making sure that changes over time, which is what Portia pointed out before, are actually recorded um, in a way that's useful um, throughout the assets lifetime, lifetime and artist's lifetime. That matter. So it's a pretty lofty goal in terms of where we are at. Um, you know, I'll, I'll get into some of the clients we're working with and why I think this makes sense. Our approach might make sense. Um, but essentially, rights data and music data more broadly is actually a perfect use case for um, blockchain, an, an underpinning of blockchain. What the chain effectively does, from my perspective, is it provides an egalitarian way to share data and track changes. So Everything else that's very specific to music rights, like we talked about, two parties, six different rights in the U.S., infinite ways to monetize, blah, 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 all that stuff needs to be thought through with music industry specialists, not blockchain specialists. But the chain is actually really good at communicating changes and, and acting as the clerk of the court as it relates to data. So, um, you know, we, we I actually think this actually is one of the most useful and, frankly, foundational um, things that make sense to do. Um, I, again, reemphasize, you know, the chain doesn't solve everything. So we got to get rid of that myth, right? And the idea that somehow we're displacing the industry because we have technology coming in, right? Disrupting everything. I also, I also think that's a myth. And I think those are the two main reasons why um, maybe sort of technology optimism didn't meet actually market demand. Right. Um, as I said earlier, the blockchain is how or part of how you would actually get something done, not the why or what of what you're trying to solve for. So you talked about rights management and, and, and managing data in general. I mean, there were past attempts to, to create global databases of, uh, databases of rights. There were sometimes semi, I guess you could call them independent companies, entities trying to do it. And then there were also some that weren't so independent, you know, PROs teaming up or other entities that, you know, other, other parties in the ecosystem did not think was going to be neutral enough to, to justify kind of buying into it. 
Um, one question that comes up is, you know, you're running a company, so obviously there's some profit motive involved. So people will instantly wonder, well, you know, what, how do we protect that neutrality of data that the, the blockchain technology is meant to, meant to provide if, you know, you have some, some interests of your own? Um, yeah, maybe just leave it with that. What, what, how do you respond to that? Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great point. Um, we, where we are today as our company, um, is, um, you know, still nascent. Um, so we don't have a fully distributed, if you will, multi-tenant, you know, blockchain community of data, data owners or node runners, as some people would call it at all yet. That's for sure. Um, I think you take an incrementalist approach to that. Um, our philosophy as a company is it's it's everyone else's data that we want to be great caretakers for. We're not trying to become another monopoly. Um, uh, we do need critical mass of players to get involved. Um, we currently have seven clients, including a major label, major publisher, a major PRO, and a global uh, streaming service, as well as a distributor. Uh, which is Fuga, I can I can name them, um, involved in actually um, working on essentially creating that, maybe the beginnings of, right, a microcosm of the recorded music horizontal, you know, all the different verticals. And, um, at, but at this point in time, we're actually literally just running, you know, a singular data set. Um, I think the true benefit of having an egalitarian data set happens when you have a distributed ledger that everyone's agreed to. I don't think we should be the ones dictating that, which is why we've always taken a client-first approach. Early days, I'd like to think that in two years-ish time, we'll have a community of large as well as um, representatives for the independent artists involved in the data community, and we'll make those decisions together in terms of how we create the distribution but you know out of fairness today we we are you know quote just another database if you want to be blunt about it um but with the spirit of you know having this technology work for the broader community for their benefit um two other things because you mentioned it yes we are a for-profit company um small startup we haven't made a profit yet but we'll hopefully get there soon uh and um the other point is you know yes other things have failed and we very much recognize that. I think it's a very, very difficult um, you know, trick to try to get all of everyone involved, right, in order to make this work. I think that's a little bit of, uh, of a too high a bar, if you will. So we have a very different approach towards building this, which is we don't think we need everybody. We do need to have enough of the larger organizations playing nicely with each other around sharing data. And that's been our approach. And I think we're, we're getting there. It's taken a while, but we are getting there. The mindset has shifted uh, on many of these organizations in terms of what makes rights data move more quickly so that everybody in the value chain can get paid properly and efficiently. Portia, where do you think Verify, Ken's company, might get hung up in this process? Oh, I don't know. I didn't really want to <laughs> comment on Ken's company. <laughs> I'm sure Ken's company is awesome. Uh, rip me. Yeah, I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's the best Thank you. Uh, at what they do. But I, I don't feel uh, qualified to comment on Ken's company. At all. Okay. That's fine. Um, so, so maybe I'll ask this question. What do you guys think needs to happen across society for the dream of blockchain to become more... Um, 
more implementable in in music what's what what needs to happen in a bigger picture because in a way it feels like you know you, you ken you've talked about this is a, a nascent company and a nascent uh, application of blockchain so what's what's missing what needs to keep happening in in on the broader broader societal interactions and expectations and values and um and and processes that would would make this stuff work well i have thoughts on that um i don't right. know answers but you know if if they, if someone were to come up with a super simple interface something really easy um like a spotify type thing like instagram for example something that's so easy that it's on every kid's phone and then when kids make new music they can just put their information in to that simple interface, right? Um, it also has to be cool. You know, it has to be something that, that kids want to use. So, I mean, this is like a really tall order. This is total, I'm just really <laughs> throwing this out here. Um, and it has to be, you know, interesting. Might It might have to have like a social component, um, you know, to get kids to want to do it. I think that's the only way that we're going to, I mean, I think that's one of the ways that would be easier to get um, young people to understand how to, uh, you know, get their credits in there right at the very beginning. You know, I think for older artists, for more established artists, they become surrounded by a team of people who definitely get it that recording stuff like that is important and at the source. Um, but, you know, something that made it easy because we're just seeing, I mean, what is it, 40,000 new songs uploaded to Spotify every day, something like that. If we're in that, you know, if that's where we're, we are, and I think Ken really put it nicely when he said that, you know, the industry didn't really see this digital revolution coming. Like, we didn't prepare for this. We didn't, you know, the the problems that we have are, are problems that just came up as opposed to, you know, us having a great idea about like, oh, this is how it's going to unfold and we're going to need this kind of solution. You know, we're playing catch up to some extent. And, um, and as a result, you know, I feel like, you know, what has happened, I'm sure it happens in every, every time technology changes, but a, the flaws in the system have been highlighted by by this um, new technology, the changes in technology. So, you know, if blockchain is a tool that is underpinning some kind of cool new interface that makes it fun and cool for kids to record their credits when they write a song, then that, I think, would change things in a big way. And I know that that's kind of bananas. Well, uh, longtime Music Tectonics listeners will have heard um, Viva Sound uh, and their Studio Collect um, app uh, or plug-in on the on the show before. Um, not sure whether they're listening, but if they are, maybe they'll make it more Instagrammable looking um, as well. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, that's it's interesting because you've throughout this conversation, you keep going back to the point of creation is the moment where you think it's the the most challenging to capture capture this information. Ken, do you want to res- respond to that idea? Um, yeah, you know. By the way, this this sort of notion of making it easy for creators to manage their rights and data, you know, it's not very sexy, but it's super important, as we all know. 
Um, and so we, we actually have various projects in mind, uh, including a couple of negotiations we're making on, on ensuring that, um, you know, we don't end up just being an enterprise solution, if you will. So getting to the individual artists and the, and the creator community, both on the songwriter side and also on the recorded music side. And making it easy and simple and fun and um, accessible and actually connected to things that matter to them, even though they may not know it, I think is the trick, right? So, you know, it's got to be easy for you to load up your information when you're doing your co-write session in a studio. Boom, that data is there. But it also needs to go places, right? It needs to make sure it gets to if you ever sell your music or you do a you do a deal around pub or whatever. So I think there's sort of that migration over time aspect. And then, you know, my, our, I think our, our view as it relates to um, the, the sort of creator's life, if you will, is it's gonna continue to, you know, we're, we're, we've made these amazing creative tools and We've very much focused on the actual creation, and I think there will continue to be innovations around there. But you know, the hope I think that many of us has is that it's in in a seamless way, the data stuff starts to show up in that creative process. So, for example, we're speaking to a number of the DAW manufacturers about embedding what we do, which is not only capture the data at the point of a recording session or whatever, but also allow the mechanism for the data to be collected asynchronously or over time, right? Because not everyone might have been there or you might do a second session where there's a different uh, group of people involved, et cetera, et cetera. So this idea of building truth over time so that when you go to commercialize or monetize the music asset, you've got enough data or better data um, and a mechanism that continues to improve that data, I think is, you know, fundamentally behind the mission of what we're trying to do, actually. So I think um, I think Porsche's nailed, nailed it on that one. Awesome. So let's broaden it out. Um, since it's clear uh, both of you are trying to make the music industry more successful across the board, um, where do you see glimmers of hope and creativity in the music business these days, regardless of whether this is a blockchain topic or not? Where, what, are, what are the things that are getting you excited these days? Well, can I name some companies by name? It's fine with me. Okay. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch that I've been really excited about. There's a company called Super Hi-Fi mm-hmm. that is, uh, is envisioning what's next for streaming services. And I love their idea, which is that, you know, basically right now all the streaming services are the same. There's, you can get the same stuff and it's just a matter of the interface. But what if, what if they made the way they deliver that um, streaming content sound different, like sound branded? So when you were listening to something, you actually knew you were listening to Spotify because of the way it was presented. And I thought that was genius. Um, I just thought that was fascinating. And they have an AI that powers that. Did you see them at AI's Got Talent, the uh, talent show we had at Music Tectonics? I, I saw them. I, did, I saw them there. Um, oh, I don't yeah, think I yeah. saw the demo there. but uh. They participated in our, our AI's Got Talent talent show. Um, and theirs was a little different than the others because a lot of them were about how AI is being used to create 
music, um, but theirs was more about how AI is being used to create the DJ human-like experience of segue from track to track or from tr music track to audio track and, and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, that was that was a fun thing that emerged at the conference. What else you got? Yeah, they were, and I just like, I like it because they're thinking about what's next for streaming and I feel like we haven't really done that and that's a great thought because that is true. It has to happen, right? At some point, streaming has to sort of change. It's not just going to be the, you know, what it is now forever. So I like, I like that's very forward thinking. I, I mean, when, when, uh, and it's interesting to hear you say that Portia from your, your position and your role in the field as well. Um, because you know, when Spotify started buying up, um, podcast related, um, uh, companies, whether they were tools or actual, you know, publishers of podcasts, I think a lot of people in the music industry got concerned that they were basically using that to leverage on price for access to using music for streaming. But what I'm starting to see emerge from my perspective is that Spotify is no longer thinking about competing with other streaming services. They're thinking about competing with radio, the entire concept of radio by mixing music with other other spoken spoken word and audio. And obviously there's news now, I think that they're looking at the ringer as another acquisition, um, which, yeah, it makes me think of when SoundCloud said they're going to be the YouTube of audio, which sounded cool and was cool for a while, but the business model didn't quite go in that direction. It, it, you know, it does make you think, oh, wait a second, you know, audio has been like playing second fiddle to video lately, but there's still so much possible experiences with audio, just music being one piece of that as well. So it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of kind of move uh, that you're kind of referring to with that super hi-fi example yeah i like i i think that's really exciting to to just think about that whole i that whole you know potential future there's another company called tracklib out of sweden mm -hmm. that is is doing incredible stuff um with uh licensing for samples sample licensing and then also um creating uh the technology to um, to do the sampling, and what I think is really exciting about that is, I ref, you know, I, I spoke earlier about um, the zillion and one income streams that we now have for artists. But one of the coolest things uh, about sampling these days is that sampling can bring back the career of an artist who was previously, you know, maybe lost in the mists of history or. Um, or whatever, you know, or, or mm -hmm. you know, deceased and, and people just don't remember their music as well. Uh, you know, I think sampling technology is one of those incredibly cool things. Um, and we're seeing, I, we're, I know we're seeing that on TikTok as well. Like I really love um, how a lot of the technology today is bringing back the careers of older artists to a new generation to appreciate them all over again. So I think that's really fun. We will be listening to ABBA for hundreds of years to come. <laughs> <laughs> And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> not a bad just thing. For the <laughs> cool. Were there more Porsche or should we ask Ken for some, something from his glimmers of hope category? Well, I think the company Jamber is really exciting too. If you guys are familiar with them. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> what they do is just great in terms of getting artists um, connected to and sort of, you know, I love it when technology educates people by the way, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, we're doing this thing for you, but you know, we're also teaching you something, by the way. And I love it because artists do need to understand where their money comes from and how. Um, and so, you know, to be paying people and also giving them a little sly education is pretty rad. Awesome, Ken. You want to throw in the mix anything from your your hope hope and creativity category? Um, maybe not specific companies, but 
you know, the, the idea of a more democratized toolkit, which is what Jamber would be an example of and some of the other companies, I think um, it's nice to see a decade into being a, a music tech person, um, you know, solid um, services actually now available. And I think, you know, that underpins, right? I mean, you're, you're asking every artist to be a small business person. And I think it's a lot of, you know, it's very distracting if you get caught up in the in the skunk works, if you will. And I do feel like that's something that is, um, let's say, you know, over the next decade going to be both available, affordable, and I think to Porsche's point, you know, educates um, the sort of creator creator community broadly, you know, on, on what's necessary. There's another company called Cosign, which I think is also doing similar things that I'm very excited about. Um, but away from sort of the, the sort of underpinnings of a more democratized toolkit to make all this work more efficiently, you know, I'll just point out, it's an amazing time to be a creator, actually. You know, you can instant free distribution if you want from your bedroom, you know, tools to collaborate globally across artists, multimedia related stuff, you know, amazing, great sounds being able to be produced for lots of, for very little money. I think it's actually wonderful. And as a consumer, you know, the Celestial Jukebox is real. It's going to get better. It's going to get, you know, augmented over time. It's inexpensive or free, depending on what you decide to do. It's amazing. Um, so, you know, I think because music, the music industry and the music business is about monetizing these assets and getting paid for it, that's hard, right? It's gotten harder. Um, so there are some worries there. You can go down a a, a deep rabbit hole there around artist sustainability and all that. But, you know, reality is it's micro pennies per, per stream. I think that's, you know, um, that's the reality of where we are. And I think things that help ultimately um, sustain creators' careers in the monetization box, I think is actually the, the, the problem that hopefully many of us are, are involved in solving together. Because um, that's what's going to make a much more robust creator economy. Um, you can't get worried about the the tail, if you will, because you you know you can't get paid. Um, another big one for me that I see as an opportunity. You're starting to see very large companies like Hypnosis do this. There's um, outside money that's now investing in music. I think that's a fantastic thing, and we're just scratching the surface. Um, you know, we have a very traditional, the traditional music industry way of financing artists' careers um, and, and music assets with advances, et cetera. You're now seeing definitely sort of the morphing of that, in my opinion, happen. I think that's great. You're diversifying risk capital. You know, I've done some in artist and, and songwriter direct investment in, in sort of my portfolio of work. I think those things... Um, you know, they might be small right now. It's very difficult to do these things well, um, especially when the data ain't great. But as the data gets better, I think you're going to see, you know, some hopeful capital, if you will, and alternatives to actually financing artists and careers and music assets that um, have been, you know, out of the market, if you will, outside of music publishing for a long time now. Um, and I, I do feel that now that everything's an evergreen annuity, you know, if we can get that thought um, understood by the people who are looking for returns, I think you can turbocharge or, if you will, change the 
the the requirements behind sustainability for artists. So I know that's very abstract, but that you know, for me, I, I look at that as actually as a huge um, plus sign uh, in where we are today. I agree, Ken, completely. I think that that is one of the most exciting things. I've I've thought I've thought about that a lot recently, especially. You know, because for, for years it was like indies versus major labels, like that that was always sort of the narrative. And it doesn't really have to be that way anymore. You know, if you have investors, if you have um, people behind your company or even just behind your artist, you know, yeah. it can be, uh, it, it does sort of democratize, democratize the playing field. So yeah. that's pretty awesome. It's a very different way of talking than... Um, people who are talking about cryptocurrency. <laughs> so <laughs> you definitely have demonstrated uh, where the blockchain conversation is now versus when it was a few years ago. So, so he, um, and no, I, I mean, all, all those larger pattern things around democratization of, of both creation and monetization, um, obviously, and, and all the things, you know, Portia, you talked about as well, um, both some big picture about, you know, where the music industry is going and how innovators are, are building stuff that actually does help um, uh, is, is super, super awesome. Thank you both for being so peaceful in this conversation. It's like, it's like you didn't hand out any boxing gloves, Dimitri. <laughs> I was like, you know, waiting for that. What happened? Or wrestling masks, yeah. Mexican wrestling masks. Yeah. Yeah. You wore one. That was cool. Um, so, um, no, I, I'm glad to, to, you know, to be a part of documenting this evolution of conversation um and and also modeling a, a different approach to having the conversation so hey portia before we begin our wrap up um can you tell our listeners about the music biz conference that the music business association which you're the president of is hosting in may in nashville i know in the past you've had a startup summit you've had a metadata summit um what can the music innovation world the music tectonics community expect out of the conference in 2020 oh yeah music biz uh 2020 will be in Nashville from May 11th through the 14th at the JW Marriott. And it's going to be amazing. There's going to be uh, great crowdsourced programming so that we, uh, we source from our members, um, our panels. We're also doing a, com a community hub this year where we're going to have roundtables and speed dating one-on-ones. Um, it's going to be really great and you should all come out. You should go to musicbiz.org to find out more. I will be there. Awesome. We're good. Next week, we're going to have huge news about our 2020 Music Tectonics Conference. If you want to be the first to find out our 2020 dates and venue, go to musictectonics.com right now and sign up for our newsletter. That's where we always put exclusive news first. And if you're not subscribed to this podcast, please subscribe now so you can also keep up to date with our future programming announcements. Ken and Portia, thanks so much for joining us on the Blockchain Peace Summit and on the Music Tectonics Podcast. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Uh talking to both of you. We'll do it again hopefully soon. Thanks, you guys. That was great talking to both of you as well. See you later. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics.